0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Robin Buller, your host. Today we are joined by Professor Jeffrey Chandler of Rutgers University, who will be talking to us about his new book, Holocaust Memory in the Digital Age, Survivors' Stories and New Media Practices. Jeffrey, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me, Robin.
0: So our traditional first question at the New Books Network is to ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: I'm a scholar of modern and contemporary Jewish culture. I work on uh, uh, Jewish life from late 19th century to the present in North America and in Europe primarily. Um, uh, Some of my areas I'm especially interested in are Yiddish language, literature, and culture, Uh, Holocaust remembrance, the role of media in modern Jewish life, uh, practices of Uh, Jewish visual, material culture, and other topics. Uh, As you mentioned, I teach at Rutgers uh, University. I've been there since the year 2000. And before that, I got a PhD uh, in Yiddish studies at Columbia University.
0: Wonderful. And so you're based in New York? Yes. Wonderful. Um, So what brought you to write Holocaust Memory in the Digital Age?
1: Well, the uh, Visual History Archive, which is this very large, it's the world's largest collection of videotaped interviews with uh, Holocaust survivors and other witnesses to the Holocaust. Um, and this very large collection uh, came to Rutgers in, I think, the year 2010. In other words, Rutgers was able to get access to this collection, which is accessed online in its entirety beginning that year because of the scope of this archive. It's not something everybody has access to in its entirety, but universities and research centers uh, arrange to get this access. And it came to Rutgers back uh, eight years ago. And when we first had access to this, uh, uh, some colleagues of mine who also work on uh, the Holocaust in one aspect or another, and I were invited to see how it works and try and think about what we might want to do with it as researchers and as teachers. And I uh, was interested in what this archive reveals about how survivors remember the Holocaust, uh, especially in this format of, uh, you know, video interviews. And I was also interested in this whole archive, this whole collection as a memory work in its own right. So that's what I started to just explore in a very open-ended way. And one thing led to another, and I eventually found myself writing a book about it.
0: (laughs) No, I remember when my home institution gained access in Toronto, and uh, yeah, it was a very exciting research moment. so let's, let's sort of keep talking about the Shoah Foundation's Visual History Archive. Many of our listeners might not be familiar with it.
1: So the, uh, the Shoah Visual History Archive was uh, begun in 1994 uh, and at the initiative of the filmmaker Steven Spielberg, who the, that previous year had just made Schindler's List in the course of making the film he had met and talked with lots of Holocaust survivors, not only survivors who um, he met in the course of filmmaking, who had been on Schindler's List, had been rescued by Schindler, but other Holocaust survivors as well, telling their stories. And he wanted to do something to collect those stories and share them and eventually decided to create uh, the largest such collection. There had already been a number of projects, more than a dozen in the United States, in Israel, in Latin America, in Canada, um, uh, possibly in Europe as well, that had already begun making similar kinds of video recordings. Uh, But he wanted to create the largest, not only in terms of number, but in terms of scope as a a truly international project. And uh, so that, uh, you know, project started Uh, In 1994 and from 1994 until uh, 1999, the year 2000, uh, they recorded uh, more than 50,000 interviews uh, primarily with Jewish Holocaust survivors, but also with other uh, Holocaust survivors and uh, witnesses to the Holocaust, people who were liberators, people who were involved in war crimes, trials, things like that. So a huge amount of material uh, collected in a very short period of time. Uh, in, the, um, in the 1990s. And so I was interested in this because there had already been not only previous video recordings starting in the late 1970s, but as soon as the war ended, uh, the people we would now call Holocaust survivors, either at their own initiative or at the invitation of various uh, organizations, started... Uh, documenting their experiences, whether it was writing them down, making audio recordings, later video recordings. So how did this project fit into this trajectory that by the time uh, the, the Visual History Archive was initiated, uh, this has been going on for half a century. So what uh, what could we learn about this in the context of this progression over time and also across media of Holocaust memory practices that were centered on the stories that Holocaust survivors had to tell.
0: And in your book, you, 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 know, you engage with this archive um, critically. Of course, it's very important. Um, and there are also some, uh, you know, some critiques that you have as well. I wonder if you could tell us how it's particularly helpful. And also, you know, are there any problematic elements about it that you engage with?
1: Well, what's distinctive about this archive, not only its size, uh, but in part because of its size, uh, there was an awareness early on that there would be a need to create um, uh, an apparatus to help people find their way through this material. Anybody who's ever worked with oral histories of any kind knows that they're very rich, they're very labor-intensive. And it's one thing if you have one, if you have 50,000, it can really be overwhelming. And so a key innovation of this archive in putting all this material online, uh, digitizing it, and uh, uh, then making it accessible remotely, which in and of itself was a major technological step. The earlier projects were recorded on videotapes and you watched physical videotapes uh, on the site of the archive. Now this could be accessed anywhere. And the uh, collection is indexed in uh, a very elaborate indexing system that uh, identifies uh, moments in these recordings. So, not just the whole recording itself, and the average length of these is is about two, two and a half hours, uh, but actual moments in the archives where specific topics you might be interested in are discussed. And it also allows you to aggregate uh, dozens, maybe even hundreds of interviews on that topic, and you can listen to where dozens of people discuss the same issue at, uh, uh, at a particular moment in, their, in the course of their interviews. So this is, uh, is a major uh, advantage of the archive, but it also creates uh, a limitation, as I think anybody who works in uh, an archive knows That, uh, however sophisticated the indexing and the cross referencing uh, tools that they have are, uh, they only give you a partial gateway into the collection. And what these uh, finding aids tell us is what the people who set up the archive thought the archive would be used for. This is true for any archive, not just media archives, but the paper archives, like the National Archives in Washington, D.C., in the United States. Um, uh, And so uh, what you then have as a challenge as a researcher is to figure out what else can you find in an archive above and beyond what The people who created it thought you'd be able to find in it and expected you to be able to find it. This to me is the test of any archive is how do you uh, go beyond what was expected, what was anticipated? How do you read it against the grain, which is how I thought of it? Is that the archive, this archive was set up with certain particular uh, ends in mind. Uh, one was that this would be a tool for researchers of the history of the Holocaust. And so, as a result, this index were granular about survivors' lives during the war years and less so on pre war and post war, even though they interviewed them and asked them for their full life stories. That was really the focus. Uh, another is as a memorial project. And so, the index lists the names of every person mentioned in an interview so that family members who did not survive the war are documented and remembered. And these could be people for whom there is no other record of their existence. And uh, so that's another important uh, aspect of this as a memorial project. And the third and what I think has become for the Shaw Foundation, which uh, uh, runs the archive, created the archive and now uh, you know puts it out there uh, for the world to use. Uh, is that the archive should be used as a resource of moral education, of teaching tolerance, that by listening to these stories of, you know, worst case scenarios that come out of intolerance, uh, people will uh, learn to be uh, uh, more tolerant, better, uh, better citizens uh, with uh, re- regard to the the people around them, people around them who might be different for any kind of purpose, uh, not necessarily connected in any particular way to the Holocaust. And so that shapes the way the archive is set up to be used. I wanted to see, well, what else can you find? And how else might you find it using the apparatus that they've created? And so, how
0: did you go about doing that? I mean, you've mentioned that there are sort of search terms that you put in. Like, what would you, what questions were you asking, and how would you search for the answers?
1: Okay, so I'll tell you the first thing that came to mind uh, as I was looking at this archive, it reminded me of a conversation uh, at a conference that I went to, I think it was in 1994, 95, 96, somewhere around, somewhere around just about the time this archive was going. To, you know, it was getting going, was being created. And um, there was a conference on Holocaust history and memory. It was in, uh, it was in Berlin. And um, at one point there was the subject of uh, survivor interviews came up, not specifically about uh, this project, but other projects had been up and running. And then the guy in the audience said, uh, you know, I have this uh, friend in uh, Israel, and he's listened to some of these interviews, probably ones that were done by Yad Vashem. I think they started doing video in the 1980s and, of course, had been documenting uh, on paper or in audio much earlier of Holocaust survivors' uh, narratives. And anyway, this guy uh, in Israel, he says that when he listens to them, he can tell what books they've read, what movies they've seen because it shapes the way they tell their story. And I thought, you know, that's really interesting. And how would you actually ascertain that as a scholar? It's one thing to have a hunch, right, when you're listening. But how might you actually measure that? And I thought, well, let's see what's in the index that might lead me to an investigation of this issue. And one of the things I looked at was to see what was under films. Because he said, you know, what were the films that people read? Or uh, watch rather. And uh, so uh, there was a general heading about film and television. And within that, there's only one film, specific film, that's indexed, which is Schindler's List, uh, which isn't surprising, given its connection to the creation of the archive. And there were... um about 100 interviews where people mentioned the film Schindler's List at some point in their interviews. Most of these, about two-thirds of them in English. So I thought, okay, I'm going to listen to all these ones in English because that's plenty. And was curious to see just about the place of English in this uh, whole discussion and uh, see what they have to say. And uh, it, was, it was quite revealing. Um, uh, Especially, um, well, it's two things. One was a number of these people had been Jews who were rescued by Oscar Schindler, and so uh, in telling their story, especially you know in the immediate aftermath of the release of this film, which of course you may remember, garnered enormous attention. Uh, it was a widely seen and widely discussed film. It's really thought of as a you know, threshold moment in Holocaust cinema and Holocaust memory practices and so on. And uh, so now here they are telling their story in relation to what has become the the most widely received version of Oscar Schindler's rescue of of Jews uh, during the Holocaust. And it was very interesting to hear how they, uh, more often than not, pushed back against the film. Uh, they would talk about what's not in the film. They would tell you why it's not in the film. Sometimes saying, you know, the film, people think it's violent. The situation was so much worse, and you couldn't put it in a film. You had people saying, well, you know, this film, it's so-and-so's version of the film, and let me tell you... He really doesn't know what he's talking about. It's very self-serving. And I could tell you, you know, and they start, you know, dishing basically about the film. It really, and and, and the, the whole emergence of this narrative from the novel written by Thomas Keneally that was the basis of the film and so on. Uh, and uh, so you realize that for these survivors, um, they had to position their narrative in relation to the film and, and more often than not, not that it correlated, but that they had to uh, separate it out in some way. They had to correct the record. They had to give you information that you weren't going to get from the film and so on. So that was fascinating. Another other thing that came out of this was that they would start talking about the film and they would often say, you know, it was a very realistic film, but And then they would suddenly, and this was clearly on the spot, they started to talk about the difference between a representation of historical events and the events themselves. And it was quite interesting where that went. So a number of people, for example, mentioned this issue that, you know, what they couldn't show, it was too violent uh, to be shown. Another thing that they talked about was... Uh, the the limitations of a film that that not every part of the story could be told. Uh, One guy says, you know, it's a very realistic film. but It's only three and a half hours long. I was in the war for five years. How do you put five years into a three-hour film? Meanwhile, this guy has just told his life story in two hours. Uh, So one of the things that was interesting to me was – the sudden realizations of the difference between a representation of experience and the experience itself and the fact that that could be discussed in terms of the film, but it was probably too difficult to think of that in terms of one's own narrative. Um, I was struck, for example, that when people did talk about, uh, you know, the disparities between the film and actual events, not a them mentioned language. It's an English language film. Uh, nobody was speaking English uh, and in the actual events. They were speaking Polish, Yiddish, German, uh, maybe some other languages. Not a lot of English, if any. And yet uh, nobody talked about that. Um, and I thought that that was striking. And then I realized, well, they're talking in English. So in a way, English was just the conveyor of information, the fact that it was A different language from the language of the original events just kind of dropped out. So, uh, it it taught me a lot about to think about this whole issue of the way people, uh, tell stories and the extent to which they are reflexive about what it means to, uh, tell a story and the challenges of, you know, representing much larger complex events than you could ever put into a narrative no matter how long it might be
0: right and so while we're talking about language just because this is this is one of the sort of cores of the um multiple arguments that you make you um analyze specifically the role of yiddish in survivor testimonies and i found this section really fascinating um i wonder if you could expand on it for our listeners
1: Sure. So I um, uh, was struck by, first of all, the scope of languages. Uh, there are more than two dozen languages in which people are interviewed and uh, including over 600 that were in Yiddish. And as somebody who is a Yiddish studies scholar, I was just really interested to see, you know, what what that had to offer. And uh, I was especially struck by looking that uh, there were in their list of languages that interviews were conducted in a number of them are listed as being essentially bilingual interviews. Uh, in other words, it would say that it's in French and German, or uh, you know English and Spanish, or something like that. And the great majority of bilingual interviews were in Yiddish and English. I thought, well, this is something I'm going to just have to check out. So I, I think there are about fifty of them. Um, which on the one hand is a small number within the scope of all these interviews, uh, but it's a large enough number that I felt there, there might be something significant here. And it would be interesting to think about uh, the, the whole phenomenon of a small number of interviews that are involved more than one language when the great majority are in one language. And it made me think about the whole role of language in these interviews so that, uh, you know, when somebody, a survivor contacted the foundation to be interviewed, they would say, what language would you like to be interviewed in? And they would find an interviewer with that language. And that actually so, sort of typical of doing oral histories is that they're monolingual and it's assumed that language is there to convey information. But when you think about Jewish Holocaust survivors, it's actually hard to find a Jewish Holocaust survivor who hasn't had uh, knowledge of and often fluency in more than one language over over the course of his or her life. Uh, the, the great majority of survivors uh, have... You no, know, currently speak as a language of daily life, a language different from what they spoke before the war. Many people grew up in uh, richly multilingual environments, especially in Eastern Europe. Uh, and um, all these interviews in English, about half of the Jewish survivors interviewed are interviewed in English. Uh, very few of them knew English before the war. It's a very small number. And for none of them, I'm assuming it was a first language, just because of where these folks were living, right? So, um, so when you interview somebody whose life has been multilingual in one language, you're collapsing the role of language. And language is here basically as a, a, a conveyor of information, not as a subject of interest in its own right. But then with these bilingual interviews, language suddenly becomes significant in a really interesting way. So the most common thing that would happen in these interviews, at the beginning of the interview, they would have, the uh, interviewer would introduce the survivor, say, uh, I'm interviewing Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so in this particular town on this particular date, and the language of the interview will be, they'd state the language. And so a number of these interviews begin saying the language of this interview will be English. But it's indexed as English and Yiddish. So what's going on? Well, what happens is they start the interview. And at some point, and it can be fairly early on or it can be later, the uh, interviewee, the survivor, switches to Yiddish. And uh, sometimes it keeps going back and forth. Sometimes it just, they switch and they never look back. Uh, the, so, does the interviewer
0: know Yiddish in this situation? Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no,
1: that's what's interesting is sometimes they do, and so there are interviews, for example, where the survivor keeps switching from English to Yiddish. They start out in English, and within a sentence, they're 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 into Yiddish, and the interviewer will say at a certain point, "Let's let's talk in Yiddish is going to be easier for you," and you know. Obviously, that interviewer knows, understands Yiddish. Sometimes you have interviewers who don't understand Yiddish. And that, of course, makes these interviews even more interesting because they really don't know what the survivor is saying. Um, And that, on the one hand, might make for what looks like a really bad interview, but it actually still can be revealing nonetheless. And it made me realize the extent to which... Even when the interviewer and the survivor are speaking the same language, their sensibilities, their understandings of the enterprise are not always in sync. They're on, you know, they're on different missions. They have different backgrounds. Very often, especially the interviewers uh, in English, they're younger, they're not necessarily uh, have any connection to the Holocaust familially or intellectually. Uh, And uh, so their reason for uh, helping out and doing the interviewing uh, is not necessarily uh, close to the survivor's reason for wanting to tell his or her story. So the language thing just was so interesting to think about uh, the whole nature of communication as it goes on here, something that in the monolingual interviews might not be so available, but in these bilingual interviews, it really come to, came to the surface. Most of the time people switched languages, it didn't seem to be deliberate. And I don't think there was any one particular reason except maybe linguistic comfort. They could talk faster, richer vocabulary, less groping for words, and so on, uh, because they were switching from a language they learned you know, d- d- decades later in life from the language that they grew up in. Uh, but occasionally survivors did uh, choose specifically to say something in Yiddish when otherwise the interview was in another language. And this was especially when survivors uh, mostly at the end of their interviews wanted to perform something. They might sing a song or they might recite a poem or read uh, a, an essay uh, in Yiddish. And these were also interesting in a different way because these were moments where, first of all, these stopped being interviews because they would say, now I'm going to read something in Jewish. And they might, for the next five minutes or longer, uh, just read something or recite something or sing something. It's not an interview anymore. It's uh, it's more of a monologue. And it was also a way of survivors taking over the control instead of, um, you know, the interviewer ostensibly being in charge. The interviewer is asking questions and, and you respond. I mean, you're an interviewer, so you know about this, Right. And here, um, here the survivors saying, okay, this is my show. And also using the medium of choice, which is their first language. And I think also they wanted in interviews that are really centered around talking about, you know, the destruction of European Jewish life and of European Jewish culture. They wanted to do something that asserted cultural continuity and viability and vivacity by performing something in Yiddish. And uh, so they become very, very powerful moments uh, in their own right, even if uh, the interviewer has no idea what's being said, which actually in some ways makes these things more interesting because you're, you're sort of left there wondering, well, what does the interviewer make of these moments as the survivor uh, perform something which uh, sometimes they translate. Sometimes they say, look, you it doesn't matter, you wouldn't understand it anyway. And they just go ahead.
0: <laughs> so it's more for, for their own purposes even.
1: It's, it's for, um, it's, it's self-directed. It's, it it grows out of a a larger sense that I have about these interviews, especially when we think about these are interviews conducted a half a century after the war, the average survivor's age is around 70 at this point. Uh, And uh, that they are thinking about this to a certain extent as a legacy of what am I leaving behind? This is going to be seen by, People, not only people I might know, like my children, grandchildren, uh, neighbors, what have you, but uh, my total strangers, what am I leaving behind? This is something I want to leave behind uh, as part of demonstrating who I was, what was the world that I came from.
0: That makes sense. So I wonder if maybe we could, this is, I suppose, taking a bit of a step back in the structure of the book, but... um, Talk a little bit about the um, tension between individual narratives uh, and the sort of broader curated archival narrative that exists.
1: So uh, it's very interesting that you have uh, the ability, on the one hand, to just call up an individual interview and watch it in isolation and watch someone over a period of a couple of hours or longer uh, uh, offer a life narrative uh, in its own right in relationship with an interviewer. On the other hand, because of this indexing uh, business, you can, as I did for uh, like the Schindler's List interviews, you can cull these moments and put them together uh, and you in effect create a new narrative. Uh, you can uh, uh, draw from bits and pieces of what people have to say in, uh, this, uh, uh, in the course of their own narratives. And by aggregating them and by organizing them, uh, you can create a narrative that no one survivor would tell. Uh, this is something, of course, that's what uh, documentary filmmakers do when they make compilation documentaries, is they interview couple dozen people about the same event and then they string together bits and pieces of what people uh, offer into a narrative that comes out of what each person has to say but uh, exists separate from those narratives and this is something that I think uh, uh, is both a an opportunity that the archive offers but it's also a challenge to Think about uh, as you excerpt. Uh, what are you excerpting, exep- and what uh, what uh, what's being left behind? Uh, on the other hand, when you're looking at an individual interview, these interviews exist to be part of a collection. Uh, when survivors are being interviewed, they know that uh, they are. Uh, they are, uh, going to be part of this repository of dozens, hundreds, thousands of interviews. And that can inform the way they tell their story that can inform the scope that they want to bring to their narrative that can, uh, and help them decide what they're going to say and even what they're not going to say.
0: Okay. That makes sense. And, um, and then sort of, you were talking earlier about these, uh, sort of disruptions, I suppose, or or maybe straying from the structure of the interview in terms of something cultural like a, a song or a poem. But you're, um, the final chapter of your book also talks about more visual disruptions and how those are significant. I wonder if you could expand on that for us.
1: So uh, this is another example where the exceptions, exceptional moments, I think, shed light on the enterprise as a whole. And I was thinking about you know, what should, what should one say about the fact that this is after all, visual medium and, uh, after all, why, why videotape when you could audio tape, right? Um, it would be less expensive. It would be technologically, uh, easier to do and, uh, easier to digitize
0: if we're talking about a digital media,
1: easier to, digitize, easier to, to, to disseminate, um, and so, uh, wh- why, what's the investment in the visual? And we should note an investment that had been uh, going on uh, for some time. As soon as basically the, the, the earliest uh, video recordings of Holocaust survivors happened when, uh, videotape technology becomes something available to the middle-class consumers. I mean, videotape, when it's first invented, uh, you know, uh, I think in the late 1950s, it's uh, only used in the broadcast industry and it's very expensive and it involves very complicated equipment. But then in the mid to late 1970s, home video recording uh, becomes readily available. And that's the moment where people on a you know, sort of an ad hoc basis started interviewing uh, Holocaust survivors, uh, because you had this ready technology. Uh, so uh, you know, so this has been going on for some time, and uh, yet in the literature that people have been writing about these interviews, there wasn't that much said about the visual element. Uh, I think it's partly because the people writing were very focused on what people had to say to a certain extent, how they said it, so the visual didn't necessarily figure in. Uh, it may also be because the aesthetic of these interviews is very austere. It's talking heads. Uh, the Shaw Foundation had very, very strict rules. You set up the camera. I want a certain kind of medium close head shot. Um, and you don't move the camera. You don't cut the camera. Because this is a, a, a documentary work. And we don't want any subjective intervention by the camera operator. So this is sort of zero degree aesthetic at work. That is, of course, an aesthetic. But there was this idea that uh, uh, it, they, they are by design very austere visually. So that may not, maybe why people didn't have that much to say about this. But the only thing people would say is uh, that, you know, it allowed you to, to, you know, experience the affect of survivors as they were speaking. But a lot of what they would focus on would come across uh, audioly. You know, people would sigh, they would sob, they would laugh, they would pause. I mean, all that's audio. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, written testimonies by the Holocaust survivors are, are not lacking in emotion either. It's just conveyed in a different way. So I, I didn't think that was it. I thought, well, there's got to be more to this. And here, what struck me was, again, something exceptional and something that you could find in the index of this, this massive collection, uh, in particular, uh, that they indexed the moments where people displayed injuries that they received during the war. There are over four hundred of these uh, in the archive, and I started watching these, and they were uh, just extraordinary moments, partly because visually uh These stop being talking head moments. Even if somebody might raise their hand and put it in front of their face to show you where they lost a finger during an accident in the war when they were, you know, uh, working in a machine shop as a slave laborer, something like that. Uh, It's just a very striking moment. Even more striking are moments where survivors want to display injuries on Parts of their body that you can't readily show just, you know, in front of a camera that's set up in front of the, you know, the headshot. Uh, injuries that they got on their legs or on their back. Uh, and uh, so uh, then you see that the uh, interviewer and the camera operator had to improvise and, among other things, had to break with the rules Uh, that they were told the protocols for for, uh, videotaping Uh, and either uh, let the camera follow the survivor as he rolls up his pants leg to show you this, uh, you know, wound that he got uh, from frostbite on a death march that has never healed. And here it is, you know, a half century later, or a woman who uh, wants to show where she was shot in the back. Uh, they set up a separate shot and she takes off her jacket and sort of pulls back, uh, her, her blouse so that you can see, you know, where there's a, a scar from where she was shot. And these are extraordinary moments. Uh, first of all, you know, you're, this is not what you've been watching all along. And, uh, they remind you in a very direct way That genocide isn't only about destroying a culture, destroying a people's spirit. It's about taking people out physically. It's about destroying their bodies. And you see survivors display the evidence of the effort to take them out physically. And these are very, very powerful moments because on the one hand, here is somebody who survives that who lives to tell it didn't succeed. On the other hand, it has left them scarred physically and also emotionally. These are uh, uh, scars that they live with, uh, even though they might be scars that they uh, do not display on a regular basis uh, uh, that uh, maybe no one in their family has ever seen, uh, but that they want this presented as evidence alongside their narrative. And uh, they're, they're extraordinary moments. And this made me appreciate the power of the visual more generally is that the presence of these survivors who, as you look at them, here they are, they're, you know, folks in their 70s or older. Uh, and uh, they, um, what we get to see is them uh, as people who have endured uh, this effort to see them not live to be a ripe old age and to be able to tell their story. That's really the power of the visual is uh, seeing them not only in these extraordinary moments of showing injuries, but just their, their being there uh, becomes very powerful. And it's about the balance of the extraordinary and the ordinary. These folks, just to look at them, they look like other older Jewish folks of a certain generation, But then they tell these extraordinary stories. And part of what you realize is that these were people who, before the war, they were ordinary folks. They went through an experience that was anything but ordinary. And then after the war, they figured out a new way to be ordinary, which is a remarkable accomplishment in its own right. And the evidence of that is just staring at you in the face as you look at them uh, in the course of these interviews. That's
0: fascinating. Um, yeah, it's it's so interesting because I'm thinking about how it's not only significant for how the public who is receiving and um, you know watching these interviews interacts with Holocaust memory, but it also tells us at the same time how these individuals preserve their own memory of the events. There's this. Yeah, dual process.
1: No, I think this is a very good point is one of the things uh, I try to think about. And when I show this with children, my students, I try to have them think about what choices the survivor is making, first of all, to do this interview and then how to present what they have to offer uh, in uh, in a forum that for the most part is not something they're familiar with. Um, Most of these survivors uh, probably never videotaped before, or if they had, maybe had only done this once before. Uh, and uh, some of them talk about that they were they do public speaking in local you know, schools and houses of worship and so on. But uh, some of them say, you know, I've never, I've never told my story to anybody before. Uh, and even the ones who might do this occasionally uh, to present yourself in this particular context at this moment involves uh, a certain kind of deliberation on the survivor's part that we want to think about as uh, them – Collaborating with their interviewer, with the technicians in the room, with the foundation in creating a work of remembrance. Uh, a work of remembrance, on the one hand, will stand on its own as their interview, and on the other hand, is a small part of this much larger, really monumentally scaled project of remembrance.
0: We've talked a little bit about, you mentioned students, um, and obviously something like the Visual History Archive changes the way that people can interact with, um, with the past. So what are your thoughts on new forms of media and how it's going to impact public, but also, I guess, scholarly historical memory, you know, in the future?
1: Well, I guess the, uh, the new technology that's getting the most attention right now is the use of interactive holographic technology. Uh, And the Shaw Foundation has been very involved in this. They're not the only organization, but they've been, I think, uh, one of, if not the leading institution in creating uh, uh, these um, holographic images of Holocaust survivors that are interactive the way, um, you know, interactive telephone, you know, a Siri kind of phone is, where you ask a question and, The, uh, the technology understands your question. It recognizes not only what you're saying, but it, it comes up with an appropriate response and it simulates a conversation. Um, and so there have been now about a dozen or so Holocaust survivors interviewed, um, for this very purpose. In some cases, re-interviewed. They had already been interviewed for a video for the uh, Shaw Foundation, but now to create this interactive uh, uh, mediation and which means that they sat these folks down and asked them hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of the frequently asked questions that Holocaust survivors uh, get asked and are likely to be asked in the future and uh, then created the apparatus uh, technologically to enable, a user, which might be a student, which might be a visitor in a museum to ask a question of this image and get an appropriate answer. Um, and it's, uh, it's really, really interesting. Uh, I did get a chance to see this in action, uh, only once. Uh, and, uh, so it's just getting me to start thinking about, uh, what, uh, what this is and, uh, what what purpose this serves alongside all the other many documentations that we have of Holocaust survivors in in books, in films, in museum exhibitions, in audio and video interviews. Uh, There's an extraordinary amount of material. And uh, I I think a key part of what has motivated this in the first place is that the ability to talk to a Holocaust survivor has become something seen of unrivaled importance in Holocaust remembrance. So therefore, what's gonna happen when survivors aren't there to talk to anymore? That's a question people have actually been asking for some time. It's what motivated not only the Shoah Foundation's videos, but uh, earlier efforts to videotape survivors. Is a realization that these folks aren't gonna be around forever. And so here there's this effort, not simply to have their stories available, but to simulate the ability to interact with the survivor. And from just my one observation, uh, seeing uh, two of these uh, uh, interactive uh, uh, figures at the uh, Museum of Jewish Heritage in New York, uh, where they've been on display recently, um, I'm really struck by the extent to which this is and is this not like a conversation. And uh, there are certain things that I don't think this can enable. Uh, For example, one of the things we see in videotape interviews uh, is that interviewer asks a question, survivor answers, and then the interviewer says, well, tell me more, or, and then what happened, or, you know, drills deeper, drills further, pushes the conversation forward, something that you as an interviewer do all the time, right? Can't Can't really do that the way this technology works. It's question, answer, question, answer. Uh, It's much more um, transactional, you know? And uh, it also occurred to me that, you know, if I were uh, sitting down talking with an actual Holocaust survivor, I would ask what they thought about, you know, current events. I might say, you know, there's this, you know, real growing concern about the rise of, and the fascism in Europe and in America, and rise of, 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 of anti-Semitic activity. What do you think about that? And how do you understand it in relationship to uh, you know what went on before World War II? Uh, the hologram can't answer that question. Uh, so, uh, so what I'm curious to see is what exactly we will get. Uh, from this. It will not be exactly like conversation with an actual person. Uh, so therefore, what will it be? And it's uh, it's very, very early on in, in, in this technology and this use of it. So uh, it's something I'm going to keep an eye on and something that some of my colleagues have been studying. And uh, I'm just curious to see uh, both how this works and how the people who are Uh, creating these are going to uh, frame this work to make it uh, pedagogically effective uh, and, uh, you know, be uh, a valuable addition to the many works of Holocaust uh, memory that we already have. That remains to be seen.
0: Yeah, it's such a fascinating and, I mean, futuristic, you know, technology. And I, um, I just thought of this, but it, you know, one of the sort of Potential shortcomings I can foresee us, you know facing is something that makes me think of your chapter on um, spectacle, but you know, none of uh, because it's probably so structured, like the interviews must be so structured, the ones that they conduct in order to create these interactive holographic settings, um, that perhaps these unexpected moments that disrupt that structure won't be there either.
1: Well, I think there, there will be other things that disrupt, but in a different way. So one of the things I already observed is that people would ask a question and the hologram would respond with an answer that wasn't spot on. Uh, and, uh, and then what do you do with that, right? Um, uh, what was interesting to me was did people persist and try to rephrase the question to see if they could get the answer they were hoping to get, or did they just kind of acquiesce and say, okay, well, I guess that's as good as it gets. So part of it is, after all, for the users, the technology is new too. And uh, so what I think that's where we might find some, uh, you know, revelations in uh, the moments that aren't, Expected. Uh, The unexpected can be just very, very uh, instructive, just not in the ways that we uh, uh, necessarily anticipate or would like to see, but you still learn something. One of the things that may come away from these encounters is not saying, gee, that was just like talking to an actual Holocaust survivor, but saying, you know, it wasn't just like talking to a Holocaust survivor. I wish I had had that opportunity. What can I do about that? Which actually is a good response because there is a lot that one can do once a, a moment of history is passed. Uh, there are plenty of ways to continue to engage it. Uh, certainly this one has a, an abundance of ways. So uh, that may be one of the outcomes, at least for some people, is uh, to see this as something that in its limitations steers you to do more work.
0: Right. Another, another example of an archive being used for something other than what its creators had initially envisioned. Um, uh, while we're talking about the future, what, what are you working on now?
1: Okay. So, um, right now I'm working on, uh, a, a book that's pretty much on a different topic. Um, it was a book about Yiddish and, uh, I was, uh, asked to write a, a book for a series uh, called biography of a language and uh, they have one on German and they have one on Dutch. They asked me to do one on Yiddish. And I said, well, since this is a series, is there like a formula I have to follow? They said, no, you come up with your own formula. And I thought, well, you know, biography of a language, I mean, it might just be a piquant way of saying history of a language, but you know, let's think about, uh, let's think about, uh, you know, if you treat a language as if it were a human being, you anthropomorphize it, right? Um, That's actually very productive. It's also really, really problematic. Can I use that? So the book that I am proposed to them, which they now have asked me to write, uh, it tells the story of Yiddish, not in a chronological way, but in a thematic way through a series of chapters that are driven by by biographical profile. So there's a chapter on name, date and place of birth, gender, education, place of residence, family background, occupation, disabilities, political affiliation, uh, life expectancy. That's the last chapter. And the idea is both to, for somebody who doesn't know anything about Yiddish, they'll learn something about Yiddish. Uh, And for somebody who already knows something about Yiddish, it will help them sort of interrogate the way the story has been told to think about other possibilities. So that's what I'm in the thick of right now.
0: That sounds absolutely fascinating. I look forward to to reading it.
1: I look forward to it being off my desk. What can I say? And I I hope uh, you will get to read it as we say in Yiddish in a mazal (laughs) show.
0: Oh, well, Jeffrey, we've taken up a lot of your time. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: That was Jeffrey Chandler talking about his book, Holocaust Memory in the Digital Age, Survivors Stories and New Media Practices. Thanks for listening.